Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Wow. That's terrifying. China shop. You Dude, don't like that my... a... No, that one's scary. Yeah, that's that's what I was going for. I was going for the haunted oh, house. Were you really? <laughs> yeah. Uh... Okay, my bad. I am your host, Kyle, and joining me as usual is Eric from ES Invests on our midweek update as we talk about news, trades, whatever. If you'd like to reach out with suggestions, corrections, or shitty memes, you can do that via email at twobulls at financialineptitude.com. You can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. How are you doing today, Eric? Dude, I'm so confused with this whole intro. I'm so fucked up. I have tried to make it as complicated as possible because you keep teasing yeah, me about it. Like, what the fuck has just happened? <laughs> I can't wait till I get to hear from my wife as she tries to edit this in the morning. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Well, one, she's going to be furious. And two, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what, like, what just, what just happened. happened. What just, yeah. yeah. What, what, what just, well, like, what just went down? I'll tell you what you sound like. You sound like okay. the people I was reading on the newsfeed uh, on Webull who were following the Salesforce earnings today. There's a Webull newsfeed. Uh, there's a Webull feed uh, on the mobile app. Where if I'm, you know, not at the computer, I'll pull it up to see like uh, the earnings reports or things like that. But there's also a spot where people post and comment on everything. So sometimes news doesn't get shared very quickly on their platform, but the people on the feeds will post it pretty quick. Uh. But, there's still a lot of people that don't seem to understand that just because earnings are good, that doesn't mean that the stock goes up immediately. I think that people also don't fully understand the concept of, um, you know, markets as a discounting mechanism. I think that kind of really confuses people. Uh, Would you uh, clarify that? Yeah. So the market isn't just pricing in like today, the market is pricing in six to nine months down the road. So that forecasting function, obviously, when we get new information, you know, it's important, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that information that seems good right now doesn't have an impact on future, uh, future pricing. Mm-hmm. So that's why like earnings forecasts are so important, right. such an important part of an earnings release where a lot of times a company will report earnings, it'll seem like it's really good earnings. 
and then they'll give a forecast that's soft. And then people are like, well, what the hell? They did so great on this earnings. Why is this happening? And a lot of it is because they, they're obviously discounting out to the future. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, but in Salesforce's case, that I'm looking through their earnings report and their guidance, and both of it looks pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, 11% year-over-year growth in revenue, and I think they're projecting another 11%. And it's interesting too with their business because I think um, I think they've kind of positioned themselves to catch another big wave with all of the new technological advancements coming out, which is kind of cool if you think about it. Because a lot of instances, that's not so much the case. Well, Salesforce has been double-digit growth for the better part of over a decade. It seems like at this point now, I think there's there's only one earnings report that I can remember where they didn't quite hit that that benchmark that they've been striving for for so long but i did see that they are jumping into the ai game so even throwing a bunch of ai into their uh their press conference didn't didn't help they're leading the next major revolution in crm infusing trusted secure generative ai across their entire product portfolio that includes einstein gpt slack gpt tableau gpt and now there's salesforce gpt trust layer interesting (laughs) uh yeah so a lot of a lot of ai that they're diving into there's one other thing in here, though, that I saw that I thought was kind of interesting. I'm curious for your thoughts on maybe I'm just oversimplifying it. Um, at one point, when they're talking about their guidance, it says it assumes no change to the value of the company's strategic investment portfolio as it's not possible to forecast future gains and losses. Hmm. That kind of sounds like a cop-out to me, right? Well, what makes you think that it's a cop-out? If you can't forecast future gains and losses on your strategic investment portfolio, then how? what strategy are you using for those investments? Like you should have some sort of idea of what kind of expectancy on the return is, shouldn't you? Or at least a, a range of probabilities. I imagine they do. But to your point, I think, the and really to the broader point, I think the issue is the market. Um, the market has an issue receiving information like that. And I I think that's why they're not mentioning it yet, because they don't want to get beholden to something that they struggle with, because that's like, Mm -hmm. you know, to your point, the investments that they hold in there, they it might just be super volatile stuff or it might be, you know, who knows what it is. Mm -hmm. So they well, I mean, a lot of the stuff that these companies will do is they'll invest in startup companies just to get a piece like Yahoo with Alibaba and um now Microsoft with ChatGPT taking a sizable stake in there. Yeah, exactly. But you got exactly. to think they have some kind of plan with some sort of expectations of returns. Yeah, and to your point, I imagine that they do. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Just uh, it, was, it struck me as kind of odd seeing that in there. And I'm sure that's in every company's forward guidance that offers them. Um, one other thing with Salesforce is I actually, uh, I actually took a paper trade on this one too. Okay. Um, I have a hundred shares so i paper sold some calls against them uh, i actually wrote down two strikes i wasn't sure which one made the most sense let me find my notes here so the 242.5 call expiring on the second and the 230 call expiring on well both of them expiring on friday so one of them you can get almost four dollars for that was the 242 half and the other one would have been uh, about seven dollars uh, for selling that one okay and when I was looking at this, um, when I was pulling up the stock chart, I was looking at the 220 resistance that it was kind of sitting on. And I was thinking that if 
uh, the upside went up. The next spot I'd expect to see resistance would be somewhere around 235 and then possibly again up around 250 to 260 area. I don't, yeah, I don't hate that. Um, I'm curious though. So if you had 100 shares of something and you didn't mind losing them, that's why I did it in paper because I didn't want to actually put my shares at risk. Uh, I don't know. Do you walk me through your process if you were looking at something similar? Like say you had some shares in the underlying and earnings were coming up. How would you take advantage of the shares that you held? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first question comes down to how do you feel about the position? Like, do you want to keep it or no? I do. Okay. Definitely do. Because, yeah, a big part of that is the one of the easiest ways to take advantage of it would be to sell volatility into the event. And you can do that via short calls. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want to keep the underlying, that's just setting you up for a problem. So then the other right. the other scenario would be to just literally set up a standalone trade in it. So let's say that you want to accumulate more. So if you like the product mm-hmm. and you want to buy more of it, well, you could sell short puts, which short puts would be overpriced pretty significantly leading into with the volatility. And then, you know, if they fall in the money, you would just take them to expiration and take in the shares. So yep. that is another way to do it. Or you could just do a straight up standalone trade. But to take advantage of the shares that you have already, if you're not willing to unwind them, it comes down to do you want to add to them? And if you don't want to do that either, then there's nothing really to be done. Right. Uh, I'm just curious, too. How do you pick the strikes that you that you shoot for? Like if you were if you were in my position, what would you be using to try to pick those points? Like I, I picked two of them because one of them was further out. But I think I ended up going deeper into the money eventually because... I liked the. Uh, I didn't like the delta that I was selling at two fifty. It didn't seem worth worth the the effort, really. Sure. So, and just to clarify, we're talking about selecting the strike for the short calls, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Sorry. So, in that instance, the very first threshold I always apply is whatever my basis is. You can sell strikes below your basis, but it again sets you up for a management problem if there's a strong rally. Mm-hmm. And then you have a short call that's below your basis, which would lock in a loss on the equity that the short call is now losing money. So you would have to, you know, pick your poison. Do you want to let it get assigned and realize the loss on the shares? Or do you want to call buy or yeah, buy the call back at a loss? People then typically try to manage the short call by rolling it out, rolling it out and up, which is all viable. But it's a dangerous game because you can have things that rally and don't come back. And every time yeah. you're rolling that short call, you are realizing the PL on that upfront trade and then offering another new short call that you're hoping will cover the cost of the previous one, but doesn't necessarily do so. So this is where losses can compound rapidly. So I kind of give all of that background to just reinforce the point that if it's something that you want to keep, I would avoid short calls and avoid short calls below the basis. So with that, yeah, the way that I would look at it, if I wanted to take advantage and I'm okay, if I get assigned on the short calls, meaning I sell the shares, but it has to be at a good price. So for that, I would balance two other things. The first one is um, the size of the position. So if you have multiple lots of 100 of the basis, 
or of the underlying, mm -hmm. you can essentially just sell short calls at a ratio. That's typically what I do right. so that I don't cap upside potential. And that if I do get assigned, I still have some of the position left. Right, right. And then the way I would go about selecting the strike really comes down to the trade-off of money up front versus future potential money later. So the higher the delta for the short call, meaning closer to the money, the higher the probability that it's going to get challenged or expire in the money. Yeah. You're going to collect more money upfront for that, but you also are sacrificing upside capital appreciation of the underlying position. So for example, if you have a, you know, $2 short call against a $1 basis, you're going to collect a credit on the $2 short call, but you're also going to be able to realize the capital appreciation from your basis of $1 to the short strike of the call of $2. So a dollar, mm -hmm. you know, times whatever the size is. So the real trade-off is that the closer to the money you go, the more money you're going to collect up, collect up front, the less capital appreciation you're going to see and the higher the probability of it being in the money there is. The further out of the money you go, it's kind of the inverse. You're going to have more upside potential via capital appreciation. You're going to collect less of a credit up front and you're going to have a lower probability of that trade being in the money at expiration. So based on my assessment of how I feel about the product, if I want to keep it, mm -hmm. I wouldn't sell closer to the money. I would sell further out of the money. And essentially what I would be doing is trying to use the short calls to just amplify some of the returns. So I would right. sell them far enough out that if, if the underlying did rally to that short strike, I still collected enough money to make it worth letting it go at that point. Because some people, they'll sell stuff that's seemingly super far out of the money. They'll collect $10 and then there will be this massive rally right. and they give up a bunch of upside potential and then they're fucking furious, Yeah, which I get, but it's also <laughs> just poor planning. Uh, so yeah. yeah, so I would really be further out of the money. But the question I would ask myself before placing the, tr the trade is, if it rallies above this, am I going to be angry? Because if you are, then the $30 you might collect on being so far out of the money might not be worth it. Or you might say, yeah, it's going to have to rally 40 points to get here. So I'm going to get the entire capital appreciation of that 40 points in addition to this, you know, $30. So I'm cool with that. That's and that really the, the way of, I picture it. I think that was kind of my thought process too, was when I, I think I selected the 242 half strike, which is a little lower than I wanted, but uh, I liked the, the price and the inflection point there. And my thought was that if it did spike up to that and I was actually trading this live, I would be happy to sell my shares at that point, I think. And then that's that's literally perfect. Yeah, and then look for a, a chance to get them back at a cheaper discounted rate if possible, if I really yeah. wanted to continue holding them. And I, and I, and I do think that that's like the absolutely correct calculus to apply in this scenario. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. 
The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. What about the uh, expirations? Do you look at like the shortest term expiration ones or do you go uh, a little bit further out? That also comes down to your disposition and more often than not, the rest of the portfolio. So for example, if, um, and it also comes down to implied volatility and theta decay. So obviously there's a lot of inputs that start to come in. If we want to have a higher churn, we're going to place more trades. So Mm -hmm. we're going to have higher commissions. But if you're trying to churn more trades out, you can sell shorter DTE and you'll collect less gross dollar amount, but it'll decay quicker than if you go super far out. Mm. The trade-off here as well is if you go shorter out in time, the probability of something making a bigger move is lower. So that means that you're naturally going to have a closer short call. The strike price is going to be closer mm-hmm. because there's less time for it to make a big move. Right. So, And that's for you to kind of collect anything. Yep. So for trades that I'm trying to get more cycles on to capitalize on volatility being elevated or stuff like that, I will definitely prefer shorter term timeframes. If it's something where volatility is low and you can't really make a lot of money on the short term time frame, then I kind of am forced a little further out in time, always paying respect though, when earnings is. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to unknowingly expose myself to an earnings play via a short call that essentially keeps me in my long stock position through earnings, unless it's specifically part of the plan. Actually, that brings up another question for me. And uh, do they ever shift those dates? Do they ever report differently than the date they not, or they put on the calendars? Technically, they can. Um, I have very, I don't even know if I've ever seen it happen. I No, I think I have. I think but I have it, too, but. Yeah, but it's it's very seldom. Yeah, it's very seldom. Okay, so not something that you should typically be worrying about. No, yeah, it's it's not something that would be like a, a super large part of the way I'm thinking about things. And if they normally report in like July, then it's probably unlikely that June 1st that they're going to just suddenly drop an earnings announcement unexpectedly too, right? Yep. Like once you're getting closer to the date, then you can start paying attention to that if you're really worried about it. Yeah, I think that that's also fair. All right. Um, well, what else have you been up to this week? Anything you want to bring up and discuss? Honestly, the that trading stuff was super fun. I think for me, I'm still running basic strategies. I actually just cleared out a lot of the portfolio. So I'm trading the coverage strangle in IWM. So I have shares at uh, 181.93. And then I have some short puts and short calls out against the position. That's actually a good example of like a ratio covered call scenario mm-hmm. that I did yesterday. And I went out to 16 June And the reason why I went out to 16 June was it allows me to capitalize on the theta decay curve. And I actually did that trade yesterday because I only had $13 left in the last round of short calls that I had in IWM and they still had like three days to go. Mm. So that's actually a really great case study for people because the way I look at those scenarios is, okay, I have three days left. I can make a maximum of $13 on each contract that's out. 
is that worth holding the position? Yes or no? No. And the reason why <laughs> I said it wasn't in this scenario was because volatility has been a little bit elevated in IWM mm -hmm. and I'm already selling short calls below my basis or I'm sorry, above my basis, but they're because my basis is 181.93 and IWM is trading $10 lower, essentially, I'm already pretty far out of the money. So it's important for me to capture that opportunity while it's there. Mm -hmm. So making that movement yesterday actually is obvious. It's, it's good that I did that because if I waited and did it today, for example, sure, the short calls that I bought back would have been trading for even less than the $13 but I wouldn't have been able to sell those right. new short calls at a reasonable price. I would have sacrificed a lot of overall money in that trade waiting for the $13 left. But as you know, there's always a trade-off, man. There's <laughs> always give and take because traders then a lot of times they go too far the other direction and then they say, oh, I made some money. Uh, I don't want to lose it, so I'm going to take the trade-off. And then they start taking trades off way too early. So it's yeah. definitely a balance and you have to have a pretty well thought out process that checks out mathematically in terms of how long you're holding things, what the average profit is to make sure that you're not cutting stuff too short. But this is, yeah, a good example of managing the short calls because those are also at a ratio. So I don't have capped upside. So um, the, um, the trade that you closed out, what was the max profit potential on that? What percentage did you hit? Yeah, that's a, another really good question. So, um, the calls that I took down, I sold them on 10 May mm -hmm. and they were the two June 182 calls and I sold six of them for 79 cents okay. and I closed them down at 13 cents. So essentially I collected 83.5% of max profit potential on the short calls. Okay. And I offered the 16 June 182s. Those were a 22 Delta for 89 cents. And today those are trading for 51 cents. So you could even see yeah. on the variance right there, I've already made that money back, so to speak, if I were accounting for it that way. Um, no, that makes sense. And I would have lost. Yeah, exactly. I would have lost more money than what I bought them back for. And also funny enough, I upped the trade size because IWM has been very range bound below my basis of 182. Mm -hmm. So I see lower risk of essentially getting assigned on those. So I'm getting more greedy on the short call side of things because I'm not seeing the price behavior in IWM to feel like I'm giving up a lot of upside profit potential, at least the way it's behaving recently. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Shit, I have no follow-up to that. <laughs> totally cool. I think you just uh, you just explained that very, very well. Yeah, the only other things that I have out in that same IWM covered strangle are some cash-secured puts, and I actually offered the two June 172 puts. So I sold those today for 79 cents. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I did that, that's super short-term, and it's because I actually want to take in more shares to manage my basis a bit more, mm -hmm. but I'm using cash-secured puts to do so, so that... I either collect a credit and I don't get assigned or I collect a credit and I get assigned essentially at a price. Like I would have bought at spot today. Right. Um, but I'm just using short puts to accumulate the shares. And I really think it's important for people to think through when they say things like that, though, because most traders, they will say that 
But, but then as soon really as IWM it. falls down to 165, yeah. they're like, oh shit, I don't want it at 172. Whereas like, I still would, like I would, I fully intend to take assignment, but you know, a lot of people, they think they will act differently than they do when the scenario actually unfolds, which is dangerous. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is just being too focused on the short term. Of course. Zoom out, yeah, of course. zoom out a little more and then, and then reassess. Completely agree. All right. Um, well, Anything else you want to touch on before we, we wrap things up then? No, sir. I mean, we've got the debt ceiling that should be voting tonight, but I don't think there's anything new that's updated since then. Yeah, and didn't they already put in a resolution to slightly extend it or no? Am I making that up? No, uh, Janet Yellen gave them an extra five days. Um, she came yeah. to the pressure of that economist that's been clamoring that her date was wrong, and it was actually five days later than her deadline. <laughs> Oh, let's see. What have we got here? Oh, there is. They want to vote as soon as Thursday. Okay. So the Senate wants to vote. They have to get through the House first, though. Uh, it looks like there has been some opposition voicing uh, concerns in the House. So it's not really a Good. sure thing, I guess. Good. <laughs> we wouldn't want some sort of like swift, logical resolution. Really, what we need is a lot of theater around the broader event. It's the brinksmanship. Yeah. And... Yeah, it seems like we're moving right along in that direction, which is, yeah, it's just, it's it's good for the soul. It's what we need. It's the best way to run a country, right? Facts. <laughs> oh, God. I think we should wrap this thing up. Good. All right. That's going to take us to the end for today. I'd like to say thanks to everybody who stuck around to the end. And thank you again, Eric, for hanging around. If like to know more about how Eric trades, make sure you check out his YouTube at ES Invest. Check us out at twobullsinachinashop.com. Be back soon with another exciting episode. But until then, slap that five-star rating like a pimp slapping its hoe and take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades. Slap that five-star rating like it's the market sell button after we reported earnings and take care. Me. Yeah? You got a better one? I don't. It was just, it was too PG. I'll, I'll give you a minute if you want to mm. try to come up with something. Okay. Hmm.
oh, smack that five-star rating like a pimp smacks his hoe. (laughs) (laughs) Be back soon with another exciting episode. But until then, slap that five-star rating like a pimp slapping its hoe and take care. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Why Why does it have to be the pimp slapping the hoe? Why can't the hoe slap somebody? Well, that's, I mean, that's how the relationship works. That's slap that five-star rating. Like it's uh, John who owes you money and take care. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>